Well, you know, um, contrasts are a great way to teach. And we've talked about this for a while now. We've talked about how Matthew, he's a historian, but he's not just a historian, he's a teacher. He's teaching us something by the stories, the accounts that he includes in his history of Jesus, in his gospel. And we see one of these contrasts with last week's sermon and this week's sermon. We see, you know, I mean, contrast makes sense. We do this all the time. Good writers do this. They say, he is like that, or he is like this. They say, this is tall, this is small. It's just a way to make sense of the world. Light, dark, sweet, sour, hot, cold. It's a great way to teach. And Matthew is teaching us here in chapter 14. So last week, we spent some time looking at Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, or Herod the Baby Killer. And we spent a lot of time talking about how this man was pretty awful. Matthew follows that story immediately with the story of the feeding of the 20,000. And we'll talk about how that relates to this in a minute. But let's compare the two. So if you weren't here last week, that's fine. You're going to get the general idea. Herod's a monster. He's a bad guy. We're going to talk about him just at the beginning and then we're done with the guy. All right? So Herod throws a party for his friends involving debauchery. And it's only for his friends at a palace. Today, Jesus throws a meal on a hillside for the crowds. Herod's party is all about the rich and the famous of the Galilean society. Jesus feeds the common folk and the hungry followers. Herod's party was an orgy for its leaders. It sought the pleasures and the honors of this world. Jesus' party began with teaching and healing, and it ended with a meal that was meant to give us a foretaste of the, the, the feast to come. Herod cared nothing about anybody except for his own glory. King Jesus served his people when they forgot their food. Herod was at the mercy of his guests and what they thought. Jesus extended mercy to his guests. What an incredible contrast between the two. So as we look at this story that's traditionally called the feeding of the 5,000, which it was 5,000 men, but including women and children, it was probably around 20,000, this story appears in all four of the gospel accounts. So this is a pretty big deal because there's only two miracles that all four gospels include, this one and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every other miracle is, you know, maybe in three, maybe in one. So this is something important. One author says, what we see Jesus claim with his words, we see him prove with his actions time and time again. What he is and what he does proves his heart. And today I think we're going to see Jesus' heart for these people. And by inference, his heart for us as well. Because Jesus doesn't change. So we look at this and, you know, I mean, of all the miracles, I mean, this is one probably you're familiar with. It's probably not the one that grabs your attention, though, right? I mean, walking on water, raising people from the dead, curing leprosy, himself being raised from the dead. I mean, there are some pretty amazing miracles out there. But this one is, it needs to be higher up in our estimation. Because if you think about it, there's two kinds of people in this world right now that claim that they're doing miracles, right? We've got our faith healers and we've got our magicians, okay? And if we're honest, the faith healers and the magicians aren't touching this miracle, are they? I mean, they're not coming anywhere near it. 
You know, our faith healers get up and they lengthen legs or they lower blood pressure or take away diabetes. There's all these things that you can't actually see, right? But yet Jesus is curing leprosy, giving sight to the blind, walking on water, raising people from the dead. Not only that, but he's multiplying bread and fish in front of them. Magicians, you know, I mean, I've seen, you guys have seen these magicians. They've made the Statue of Liberty disappear. They've done all sorts of little optical illusions, which is really not magic. It's science, and it's trickery, and it's, they're pretty good at it. But think about if a magician was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather together 5,000 men, 5,000 women, and maybe five to 10,000 kids, and I'm going to have someone stand up on the stage with some bread, and they're going to begin breaking it, and we're going to sneak bread up through his sleeve to pass out to everybody and feed them all. You've got to have about 15,000 to 30,000 dinner rolls in a truck ready to go, not to mention the 15,000 fish, which had to be shipped in to match the fish from that local area, had to be, you know, keep them frozen, and then dethawed at the right time because you can't serve frozen fish and you don't want to serve raw fish. Okay, these aren't, this isn't sushi fish. So you see the undertaking this would take. A magician would have to have a huge entourage of semi-trucks parked outside just to do this miracle. See, and Jesus does it, and the, and the way that Matthew describes it, it's just like, oh yeah, he just kept breaking it. It's like, more, give me more, Matthew. Did it like break and then reappear? Or did it break and then spread into three? How did he do it? You know, did the fish start growing one head as he was getting ready to break it and it's a two-headed fish for a second? What did it look like? Can't wait to look it up when we get to heaven. But this is a visible, tangible, edible attestation to Jesus' divinity. Because only God creates out of nothing. And that's what we see here So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at Jesus' compassion, we're going to look at his humanity, we're going to look at what his power means for us, and then ultimately we're going to look at what this meant for the disciples, because that's what we are, that's who we are. So start with me, we're going to look in verse 13. The first point we're going to look at today is that we need to see Jesus' true humanity. Jesus' true humanity. See, people get caught in either ditch. They say Jesus is 100% God, or they say he's just a man. And what we believe is that it's both. He is the God-man. And that's good news for us, because a God-man can feel what we've felt. So we believe God does not change. So if he was 100% God, he wouldn't feel. He couldn't feel the things we're feeling. But because he's 100% man and 100% God, he can feel what we've felt. Look what it says here, verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What did he hear? Well, it's either he heard Herod's reaction, which was, Jesus is John the Baptist, or he heard about John the Baptist dying. Either way, it involves his friend, his cousin, John the Baptist, dying, being murdered. So Jesus hears this, and he withdraws to a boat to go to a desolate place. That word desolate doesn't mean without people. It just kind of means isolated. It means off away from people, okay? So we're not talking about a desert. We're in the north. We're in Galilee. He's up in the hills is where he's wanting to go just to kind of be away from people. Why did he do it? Well, I think probably it is probably the death of his his friend, of his forerunner, John the Baptist. 
But it could also be that for Jesus, this is the start of the, of the avalanche of persecution. That really, this is the start of that headlong rush towards his death. And having someone who has done everything right and is innocent be put to death is very reminiscent of the death that's coming his way. So could be any of these things. But what we do know is that Jesus goes to this place and he's not so self-focused that he can't care for the people that show up. You know, his heart might be broken, but then it breaks for those who come to him. So after he cares for all of these people, in verse 22, it says he sends the disciples off into the boat again. He dismisses the crowd. And then what does he do? He goes up onto that mountain and he does what he came to do. He prays. See, Jesus is not a stoic philosopher. You know, he's not Spock, right? He's not no emotions at all. Instead, he feels and he feels deeply. We know his divine nature can't suffer, but his human nature feels it. Which is why Hebrews can say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's felt them. He's felt cold. He's felt hot. He's felt sorrow. He's felt pain. He's felt loss. This means that he knows what we are feeling. He has lost loved ones. He has felt the pain of death of those he loved. So with all of this, what does he do with it? And I think this is a little mini lesson, probably needs a whole sermon itself, but when he's feeling that, what does he do? He goes up on the hill and he prays. He goes up on the hill and says, I need to communicate, I need to be with my Lord. I need to be with God. So some of you right now are going through, you're going through it. You're going through all sorts of stuff. Maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe it's an emotional issue, relational issue. You're going through it. The world says, go spend time on yourself, care for yourself. Jesus' model is, go off by yourself and spend time with your God. So this needs to be a priority for us as well. We need to pray like Jesus prayed. So the first thing we see is, we see his humanity. The second thing we see is that Jesus is compassionate. Jesus has warm compassion for us. He doesn't chase them away. Look at verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So they heard about what happened to John the Baptist. They heard about what Herod said. And the crowds begin following Jesus. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is amazing. I don't know if it's a miracle per se, but you know, I remember my math class. Very little of it, right? But I remember my math. And the way it works is a straight line is always faster than a curved line. So Jesus gets in the boat, and he travels across the Sea of Galilee. The people begin walking, and there's no highways, there's no roads, there's no cars. They're walking in this little windy path all the way across the north, and they get to where Jesus is landing before Jesus gets there. Don't know how that happens. But it doesn't matter to Jesus, even though his plans were thwarted. I mean, think about the times when you have something in your mind and something gets in the way, whether it's driving or whether it's a child, right? gets in the way or another individual goes, nope, I need your attention right now, but I was going to do this. So we don't see that from Jesus. Immediately he has compassion on them. You know, Jesus does miracles for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes it's teaching. Sometimes it's to show who he is. Sometimes it's to say, here's what the kingdom of God is like. But behind all of them are compassion. We need to see that Jesus is a compassionate man, passionate God. 
The word here is one of my favorite words. It's Pastor Tim's favorite word. He loves it. I like it too. It's splokzidomai, right? The word compassion, splokzidomai. And it means from the bowels, okay? It means from your stomach. And we've talked about this before. In, in ancient times, they didn't believe that the heart was the seat of emotions because what happens when you get nervous, your heart doesn't you know, flutter. It's your stomach, right? You get anxious about something and your, heart, your stomach starts doing cartwheels. Your heart's still pumping, doing the same old thing every time. And so this word here means moved from his bowels. And that sounds really weird to us. But what it means is he was moved from the deepest recesses of who he is to, to feel what he's feeling. He empathizes with them. He feels the compassion and it leads him to care for them. He sees the needs. You know, Jesus' miracles are always driven by mercy. This has led him to heal crowds like we see here. It leads him to feed people. It leads him to, to restore sight, to heal and bring those back to life. Now, it's interesting that the crowds knew that he wanted to be alone, and they said, we don't care. We're going to go be with Jesus. So their, their attitude, for whatever reason, is not a great attitude. Jesus doesn't care. He sees their needs, and he meets those needs. This is a, like J.C. Ryle says, the miracle is a striking example of the Lord's compassion toward men and women. So that's our second point. Jesus has compassion. Third, Jesus has abundant power. And really, this is the point of the text, is Jesus has the power. Verse 25, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds awake to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, this is not an unreasonable response. The disciples actually are, are seeing a need, and they're going, we need to meet this need. We can't do it, so send them away. Go find some food. What it shows us is that this is not a necessary miracle. Right? No one has died. No one's sick. No one's injured. They're just hungry. They didn't pack enough. They ate it on their way. They didn't plan ahead. And so they got there, and there wasn't enough. There wasn't any food. So this, this is not a miracle that is that time constraints, but Jesus goes, I'm still going to do it. And then Jesus does this response. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples respond, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now a loaf is a, about the size of a dinner roll, about that big. This fish and this loaves was the staple food of everyone around the Sea of Galilee. But John's account tells us that it wasn't just any kind of loaf, it was a barley loaf. You're like, what's the big deal? It's, you know, it's a different type of, of grain. Well, a barley loaf is the cheapest and poorest quality grain that they would have made any bread from. Barley is what you feed animals or you feed poor people. So this is not even good loaves. This is barley loaves. And so he brings those to him. Jesus says, bring them to me. What's unique here is that when Jesus sees needs, and I think this is important that we get that this is what he's like for us today. When he sees needs and suffering, his deepest in instinct is move towards that. And I love that about our God. He doesn't go, ah, not you again. He doesn't go, really? How many times do I have to do that? He goes, I see your need and I move towards it. And we, we know that. We've been in situations where we've suffered or we've been in needs and we've felt close to the Lord. He wants to draw near to us because ultimately we cannot exhaust the depths of his love for us. So verse 19, 
Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And it says he ordered them to sit down. The word there is to recline. Now, you may go, that sounds a little weird. We sit at tables made of wood, right? There were no wood tables in Israel. There were no wood chairs because there's not a lot of wood. And so traditionally what they would do, especially at a big feast party-like meal, is they would recline. They would lay down, usually with their left hand propping up their head because they never ate with their left hand. That's a story for a different day. And as they're eating, they would recline and be laying, and the servants would come and feed. And so what Jesus is saying here is, lay down, get yourselves comfortable, here comes the feast. And then it says he said a blessing. This means to give thanks. The traditional Jewish blessing at this time was, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's probably what he said. Then in verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces. Those, that word for basket means a large container. We're talking about a good-sized container. We're not talking about a little basket that they bring the bread out with when you go to the restaurant. We're talking about a big laundry basket type thing. And Jesus is teaching us a lot about himself just through this story. And I don't want us to miss this because as with everything with Jesus, there's lots of layers And one of the layers we see is we see different characteristics of Jesus brought forth just by this simple miracle. The first one we see is that Jesus is a new and better Moses. The fact that he brings 12 forward and that it's bread and that it's bread out of nowhere is meant to make us go, oh, that's kind of like the manna. That's like that stuff that fell down from the sky and they would make into bread every day during their wandering in the desert. The the Messiah is to supply the needs of Israel. This is, again, to remind us of that. Twelve baskets. The number twelve pops up everywhere in the Bible. From the twelve sons of Jacob to the twelve tribes of Israel to the twelve judges to the twelve apostles to the twelve whatever in in the book of Revelation all over the place. This, again, is saying, I will provide, I will provide. One thing we don't know about in this passage is we don't know whether or not the disciples or whether the crowds knew about the 12. We're never told that. So the crowds may not have known that there were 12 baskets left over. They may have been like, you know, enjoying their post-eating kind of want to take a nap, or they might be packing up to go home. But the disciples for sure knew this, because afterwards they gathered them all up and they're like, let's see, count that up, 12 baskets full. Huh, I wonder what that means. There's 12 of us, we thought there wasn't enough, but there's more than we could have ever thought. So again, the disciples are learning that Jesus has abundant power. He is going to provide. Then verse 21, and those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. Again, probably between 15 and 25,000 people. This is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. The people, even though they don't know the numbers and they don't know all of the inner workings, what they do know is that he provided bread in a deserted place, just like God did. He had them sit down on green grass, just like David says our Lord will do, Psalm 23. They were ungrateful, and they were unbelieving and they were rebellious Matthew 11 and Matthew 13 Jesus says you're rebellious you're ungrateful you don't believe guess what that's what Israel was doing with Moses in the desert 
And so this picture is so clear. Jesus is saying, you guys don't believe, but I'm still going to care for you. You guys are, 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 are ungrateful, and you're asking for more, but I'll still care for you. So Jesus is the Messiah. Next thing we see is we see Jesus is God in the flesh. J.C. Ryle writes, this miracle is an unanswerable proof of our Lord's divine power. Jesus called into being that which did not exist, proving that he had the particular prerogative of God, meaning God only creates. Only God can say, this thing does not exist, I will bring it into existence. I once heard a story, an anecdotal joke type story, about a scientist who was like, hey, you know what, we figured out how to make life, and we can make life. We don't need God anymore. And so one day he's standing there and God appears. Don't, don't think too much into the theology of this. God appears to him, and the scientist is like, hey, God. God goes, I heard you uh, don't need me anymore. And the scientist goes, yeah, we don't need you at all. We can make life. And God goes, huh, I'm intrigued. Tell me how you do it. And the scientist goes, well, first thing you do is you take matter and you begin forming it. And God goes, oh, hold on a second. And the scientist is like, what? He goes, you got to get your own matter. That's mine. See, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you can't just grab stuff and make something out of it and say, we don't need God. Because God's the only one that starts with absolutely nothing and says, exist. And see, that's what Jesus does here. You know, he takes those five loaves and he takes 15,000 more loaves out of those five loaves. He calls into existence things that did not exist. This is God and God alone that does this. Here Jesus creates just like God the Father and him did with the universe. So we see that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation. He who spun the stars in the sky and said, go, and he said, light be. You know, he just did all of that. He does that here. Not in one day, not in seven days, but instantaneously. In the blink of an eye, a loaf is passed and it turns into two and then four and then 5,000, then 15,000. George MacDonald, the poet, writes, the miracles of Jesus were the ordinary works of God the Father made small and swift so we might see them. And I love that. I love that Jesus' miracles are God going, I'm just going to show you a little teeny sliver of the power that I use to make everything. And this is what we see here. Little teeny picture. Just a piece of bread that he breaks off and he keeps doing it over and over again. It's just showing again what it was like when he created everything. The last thing we see in this section is that Jesus is the one who meets the needs of his people. He meets the needs of his people. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will meet every need. So what that means is we can take all of our needs to him, and he has promised us he will meet them. Now this is when we get into trouble, though, because our needs and wants, we kind of squish those over each other, don't we? There's a squishy boundary between those. And the Lord says, no, no, what you need, and I know what you need best, the Lord says, I will provide those. You need, you need endurance to get through this trial? I'll give you that. But if at the same time you think that you need a new car to get through this trial, I'm not going to give you that. He says, I will give you all of your needs, not your wants. But that's a good thing, because don't, aren't, we, aren't we pretty sure that sometimes our wants are going to make things worse? Yeah. 
right? We, we, want, we want the things that the world says will make us happy, and we know they don't, they don't do it. So he promises to meet our needs. This is a God with abundant energy, abundant power, and he's compassionate and cares. So the fourth point we see in here is that only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. Look at verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. Now that's, that's a weird thing, right? We're like, I get that. I get that. You know, I, I eat a lot and I'm nice and full. Yeah, I get that. But here's the thing, though. That's not the way most of the world for all of history has ever done it. Three square meals a day is not the way it always has been. As a matter of fact, in this time when Jesus is, is ministering, one solid meal a day, you would be in the upper level of people who eat. It wasn't uncommon to have your meal brought out and you've cooked it and you've done it and to finish your meal and be hungry still because there just was not that much food. There was not Uber Eats. There was not Domino's. There was not fast food. There was not processed food. You couldn't just say, oh, you're still hungry, teenage boy? Go get in the refrigerator and grab some more food because there's no refrigeration. There's no preservation. There's none of that. And so for this to say, Jesus fed them and they were all satisfied. That word satisfied means to be filled to the point of fattening. So these guys had more food in them than they probably have had in weeks. This is the kind of God we have. He meets physical needs. But the point here is not that they were full with bread. Because the bread will get digested and they'll be hungry again. The point is, Jesus is the sole source of soul satisfaction. Ooh, that's a hard one to say. And you may go, wait a sec, but Pastor John, there's nothing here about the soul. Well, the good news is, is we have three other Gospels. And in John, Jesus preaches right after this miracle. And he says, don't be worrying about the bread. Worry about me. I am the bread of life. I am the one who provides. See, Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. The bread of God that he wants to give us to satisfy is not a thing. It's not an it. It's a who. It's someone. It's Jesus. Jesus wants us to realize he is the sole means of satisfaction in our lives. And not just partial, because that's not what the word means. It means filling to overflowing. He wants to satisfy us with himself. Psalm 107.9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And this is good news. We don't have to bounce around to all these different things. Instead, he satisfies us. Spurgeon says this, Ah, my dear hearer, if you have ever felt your guilt, if you've ever been burdened under a sense of it, if you've looked into your heart to find something good and been bitterly disappointed, if you've gone up and down through the world trying this and that to get relief, if you've found that all the dry wells of this world mock the travelers, then it will be a sweet piece of news to your heart that there is now salvation in your Savior. It's the most refreshing thing to hear, to hear Jesus say, come to me and rest. See, some of you in this room who do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, You've been trying all those dry wells. You've been trying over and over again. You're looking at the emptiness of the treasures of this world, and yet you're still hungry. You've tried the money, the power, the sex, the politics, the entertainment, the stuff, the things, 
and none of them satisfy. And you think about it, why is it that the world is constantly championing the new thing? Think about that for a second. Why is it that, oh, you know, if only you had the iPhone 27, you'd be really amazed. If only you had the newest car, right? What are they selling? They're selling, oh yeah, the one we just sold you didn't work, so let's try again. You, money, you don't have enough, you just need more. Sex isn't doing it for you, you need a different partner. Entertainment lets you down, we'll try this new streaming service. And so on and so on. The cheap and fading delights of this world will never satisfy. Only Christ satisfies. So we must forsake that pursuit of these dry wells. We must stop looking at the wells that the world has and instead look to Christ. Then we will find who we truly are. And this is a miracle that the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ hits us and wells up in us. Not only that, so that's, the, that's those of you that are like, don't know the Lord. Some of us that have known the Lord for a while, we have a problem too. And Spurgeon again nails it. He says, are you satisfied with Christ? If you're not, you've never really had him. If you've got him, he is everything for you. So the world's treasures are enticing. And for some of us, we're trying to do a little bit of both. We're trying to have a little bit of Jesus and have a little bit of the world. And if we're honest, it's have a little bit of Jesus and a lot of the world. And Jesus says, no, no, those treasures are killing you. Come to me. Make me your treasure. And we need to repent here. We need to stop gorging on the world's garbage and begin gorging on the true spiritual food. So make us hunger and thirst for him is what we should be praying. So the final point. Jesus has a plan for feeding the hungry souls. So we're going to go back through a couple of these passages and I want to point out to where this is here. So if all four Gospels are including this story, and Matthew's is a little bit different than the other three, why is Matthew's different? Because Matthew wants us to see something very clearly. And there's one unique characteristic to this story that is key because of next week's story and because of last week's story. And that is what he calls the disciples to do. So let's look at it. Now when it was evening, verse 15 again. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the village and buy food for themselves. The disciples are going, this, they need to care for themselves. You've taken care of them. You've healed them. You've taught them. They need to go get some food. The disciples initiate this conversation, and they're not wrong. Maybe they didn't pack a lunch. Maybe they didn't think ahead. Either way, the disciples are the ones who go, hey, Jesus, uh, we have a problem here. We have a problem. Verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. That word you in the Greek is in the emphatic tense, which means you all, you go do it. You can see the finger, right? <laughs> Jesus wants the disciples to see that it's their job to be the agents of caring for God's flock. But look at their response. Verse 17, they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. You know, what's interesting is I was caught as I was reading this that the disciples' tone is not super reverent or respectful, is it? It's not, Lord, we've noticed a problem. If it's not too much, could we send them away? No, it's, let's just send these guys away. Get them out of here. And then Jesus says, you feed them. And they go, okay, Lord, how are we going to do that? We only have, they just go, we only got five fish, and five loaves and two fish. Come on. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're ready for a break. Maybe they're at their breaking point. 
But here, he says, you must feed them with the five loaves and the two fishes. This is not just a little bit of something. Compared to the task at hand, it might as well be nothing. There is not enough food. This is hopelessly inadequate. So the disciples are stuck. And if, they're, if we're honest, we're in the same boat. We're faced with a problem. There's really three responses. The first one is what the disciples did, which is despair. Okay, I, we can't do it. Five and two is not going to do anything. It's not going to work. Despair. Give up. That's one option. The second option, which I love to do, and I think some of you do as well, is we frantically try to solve it. So if we take off this much of this fin, you can have that, and this one there. I mean, we try to figure out how we could break it down. Okay, seven, 5,000 into seven. Oh, how wait, that's backwards. Seven into, how do we, you know, we start coming up with a plan, right? All the while, the one who has the plan and has the power is standing right there. So the second thing we do is we try to figure it out on our own. And then maybe we invite Jesus in. Oh, you want to say a blessing? Okay, say it at the end. After we've divvied it all up, here's your piece of bread, right? The third way is to trust the Lord and humbly do what he calls us to do. Because I wonder if the disciples had said, okay, Lord, we'll start breaking it up and we'll start passing it out. If then they would have experienced the miracle in their hands instead of over here in Jesus' hands a few minutes later. See, the disciples focus on their lack of power. They'd forgotten who was with them. They'd forgotten what brought them together and brought these people here. I mean, it, you notice there was a miracle that's not even really talked about in here. And that is that he healed them all. So there's 15,000 people. Every single one of them who needed to got healed. And then they're like, well, you know, if only we had a way to make food appear out of nowhere. Hmm. Couldn't be Jesus. Okay, so there we go. See, they, they give in to their despair. They want to dismiss these people. They brought Jesus a problem, and they had no solution. And really, honestly, they didn't want to be a part of the solution. And this is a temptation for us, to see problems and want it to be someone else's problem. And not come in and go, I see a problem, what can I do to help? Here, Jesus wants to teach them a lesson, a lesson they need to learn. They need to learn that he doesn't want to send the problems away. He wants us to deal with them. And they go, that makes no sense. How is this even possible? Jesus goes, with me, the impossible is every day. With me, the impossible is no big deal. I love to take things that you think are impossible and do them in you. See, Jesus is getting these men ready because if they don't get this, the church isn't going anywhere after he goes up to heaven. If they don't get that they got to go do impossible things and the Lord's going to provide the power to do it, then the church is going nowhere. The future of the church depends on this. And honestly, that's the Christian life. We're called to do impossible things. We're called to do things that we don't have the strength and ability to do. So we must rely on Him. We must do the impossible. But praise be to God, He gives us the power to do it. He wants us to make disciples. We can't do it. He can through us. He wants us to, to replant a church and to plant a church in Oregon City. We can't do it. He wants us to love other people and show them the kingdom. We can't do it. He wants us to grow a thriving church where its members meet each other's needs and the needs of the community, and we can't do it. Oh, we can get busy and try to do all these things and then, okay, Lord, come in and bless it. No, we need to stop and go, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
oh, you want me to do this? But I have a degree in this. You want me to do that? Okay, I'll do it. And you will make it great. I love hearing stories about people that thought the Lord was taking them one direction, and then the Lord grabs them, probably by the scruff of the neck, if they're like me, and pulls them over here and lets them go, and all of a sudden they're flourishing. I heard the story of that just this last week from a member here at this church who thought she was going one direction. The Lord grabbed her and put her in a different place, and she's going a different direction, and she goes, I never knew I always wanted to do that. And that's how the Lord works. See, this is why we pray. This is why we spend time in prayer. It's why we talk about prayer every single month. This Wednesday, we're praying as a church. The reason we pray is because we want to have the Lord's blessing on what he's doing and and make sure we're in line with it. This is why we volunteer. This is why we do ministries. We may say, I don't have good prayers. I don't have much in the way to offer. But you're forgetting It's not about your prayers. It's not about what you have to offer. It's about the one behind it all. Remember Psalm 50. He says, For every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. He has control over everything. Our God is so rich, you can't ask for too much. You can't ask for him to give you too much. So we'd rather not be like the disciples standing around going, how's this going to work? We can't do this. Jesus wants to see that we can't do it, and he wants us to ask for help. You know, we provide ministry opportunities at this church, not because we want free labor, not because we want you all to be looking busy, but instead, we want to see you see Jesus. See, people walk into a ministry And if they're going in going, you know, I've got so much to offer. Mm, No, take a step back. We want you to go, I don't know how to do this. Great. That's the perfect spot for you because that's when the Lord steps in and he shows you how he takes the impossible and not only makes it possible, possible, but makes it something that you'll love. So right here, right now, Jesus is calling us and saying, you feed them. What needs to be done, he needs to do it in you, and he will do it through you. Let's finish this. Verse 18, he says, bring them here to me. Jesus doesn't argue with them that it's more than they ever thought. He says, yeah, it's it's pathetic. You have seven pieces of food, but bring them to me. And then when they come to Jesus, they become enough for 25,000. 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down, taking the five loaves, the two fish. He looked up to heaven It said a blessing, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, we can't, we don't have enough stuff. He blesses it, he begins breaking it, and then what does he do? He has them feed them. He passes the bread to the disciples. Jesus doesn't go around and going, yeah, I did this, yeah, I did this, this was me, this was awesome. No, he hands it to the disciples. And the disciples go around. Who were they thanking when they had the bread handed to them? Thank you, disciple. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Right? And so you see, it's Jesus getting the glory through his people. Because what Jesus commands, he supplies. By placing the bread in their hands, they were able to participate in something greater than they ever imagined. They were going to experience, think about those disciples, experiencing loaf after loaf, going, how's he doing this? How is it that there's 
You, you want more? Okay, keep going. All right. These disciples are experiencing this, this reality that what Jesus tells them to do, he supplies them, not just with enough to do it, but more than they ever imagined. See, people don't just pick up and decide they want to follow Jesus. He says, you must feed them, you must go. This, is, this, this passage has been used by a lot of people to say, go make food pantries. And I think that's a good ministry and it's something we need to do. But the purpose of this is not make food and let people come and get it. It's no, you take the food in you to them. There's an evangelism call here. Take the bread that is living in you, that fully satisfies, take it to others. We have the message we know where they've been. We know where those people in our lives that don't know Christ have been. We need to take it to them. Bring them to church. Bring them to life group if church is too scary. Bring them. Tell them. Matthew 28 is all about that. This is where Jesus is pushing the disciples. Go make disciples. Doesn't mean you go and do it. It means, yeah, it's scary and I don't want to do it and it's tough to talk to people about Jesus. But guess what? He's told us to do it. And right here he's telling us, I give you the strength to do it. And not only that, but he also gives us a promise. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as we go and we share, as we minister, as we care for the ministries in this church, he is right there with us. We're not doing it alone. We're doing it in his strength. So in conclusion, Jesus' purpose on earth is to glorify God. In all that he did, this was his motive. When he calls us to work for him, when we step into a ministry, we work in the children's ministry, we step into the photography ministry, or the greeting ministry, or the security, or whatever ministry that we have, if we think we have all the answers, that's not what the Lord wants. The Lord wants people who don't know, and he can then empower and give them the strength to do it. Because here's the thing, if you step in and you go, yeah, I'm really, really good at this, and I'm going to step right in, and I'm going to revolutionize this ministry, and I'm going to make it amazing, who gets the glory? I do, because I just did that in my own strength. That's not the way the Lord works. The Lord wants to say, I'm going to take this person, and I'm going to make something amazing. Look at his disciples. Those were not the first choices, right? If you're on recess and you're choosing the best disciples, you're not choosing any of those 12. Those are the last 12 chosen, right? But Jesus takes them and says, I'm going to make something amazing through you, with you, by you. All I need from you is to be willing. So Jesus takes those that cannot do it on their own. Then he does it through them for the glory of the God of the universe. That's the way he works. There's not a single person in this room who cannot do work for the Lord whether it's through prayer, whether it's through direct ministry, whether it's through giving, whatever it is, the Lord can do it through you. All he needs is a willing person. You may feel the call to serve where you never imagined, but that's just how God works. He takes you into places you never expected to go so that through his strength worked out in you, he gets all the glory. So join him where he's at. Where he's telling you to go, he will take you there and he will get you there and then he gets all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his life that is such, just a, a, every single bit of it is teaching us something. And today, Lord, it's teaching us that where you send us, you will give us the strength to get there. Lord, it's teaching us that you have compassion on us, that you feel deeply 
for us. Lord, it's teaching us that you have power, and that power is so abundant, we cannot out-ask you. And Lord, you've also told us that you've felt hurt and grief and sadness. All of this, Lord, should make us love your son even more. So I pray that that is the end result that we get to right here and right now, and that, Lord, that would lead us to want him more and more and more. Help us to do that, Lord. In your name, amen.